0: How I many of you love Jesus say amen. amen? Would you stand with me please one more time this morning? I'm so thankful for this great praise team, and which includes all of us, because this is not a spectator event here. This is a participation. Uh, <clears throat> this is not about us putting on the very best show that we possibly can to entertain you. It's about all of us together basically lifting up a praise for the audience of one, and that is God the Father. And so that is our focus. And so this morning we bring our attention together. I want you to read one verse of Scripture with me. Then I'm going to have you continue standing as I read from a small segment from Psalm 39. But we begin today with Isaiah 55, verse 11. So find a screen that's convenient for you to see. And let's read together. Here we go. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We've got the word of the Lord going out. And it's not just a, an idea that's being formed in an expression of sound. But the word will be made flesh when Jesus Christ, his first advent, comes into the world, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Isaiah says his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. This morning, we don't look for that event that's already happened. We're looking today for his second coming. So Advent is the the four Sundays that precede Christmas. And it's about the reason behind it is so that we can bring our focus, very much concentrate on keeping Christ at the center of this whole thing. The whole Christmas thing has really gone so commercial. And about you know tackling the people in the aisle and getting the last one of that toy that you had to have and, and and all of those things but advent is about recognizing that he fulfilled his first promise to come and that we look in expectation for his second advent so this morning if you would just remain standing as i read from a short passage from psalm 39 this is a psalm of david he says i said i will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased and my heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days and let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions, and do not make me the scorn of fools. Bow your hearts with me, please, this morning for a word of prayer. Gracious God, we come together today in this place, we acknowledge you, thank you for the prophet that looked ahead in history that was not yet fulfilled and he said, the desire of nations shall come. We know that that is Jesus Christ himself as prophesied by Haggai, the prophet. We look to you today, Jesus, and we thank you that you are the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of every human on the planet. Thank you, Father, that you opened your hand and satisfied the desire of every living thing. Jesus, we thank you that you're not going to be the king of kings, but you already are the king of kings. We're not looking for a day when you will be the Lord of lords. You are right now, Lord, over everything and all of creation. We we lift up our praise to you, O majestic one. I just acknowledge before this people... And you, O Lord, that I can't do anything apart from you. And I ask you to, Holy Spirit, move and speak and bring to clarity. Let understanding come today. I, I just ask you, Father, that you get in the middle of my words and my thoughts. And you make this message that is the general call of the gospel be a specific word, a coal off of the altar. Into each and every individual heart today in this place. We humbly ask you for this. We just thank you that through Christ we can do all things. We give you praise. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. In the presence of the Lord. We welcome you today. My name is Michael, I'm the lead pastor here at Victory Church. We welcome you to the, our first Sunday in Advent. Advent means to come. We're recognizing the coming of the Lord, his first coming, and looking in expectation for his second coming. David gives us this psalm. And he seems to recognize the challenges that his life, probably with a few years of experience under his belt by now, he's begun to see that there are some inconsistencies in the way life is and the way life should be. He's struggling with his own mortality recognizing that he's at that point in life where he realizes that he's not going to live forever. I believe that was a realization that did not dawn until the problem entered in into the garden with our ancestors, Adam and Eve. David is looking back in history and he's thinking about those circumstances and he's basically saying, you know, all this hustle and bustle that we do, our lives are so fleeting, they're just a mere handbreadth, it's just a whisper it's just a breath and it's gone. We, we, we run around in this rush like mere phantoms and we're heaping up wealth and we don't even have any idea who's gonna end up with it because our lives are so short. And he ends this prayer in this psalm and he says, but God, what do I look for? And he says, my hope is in you, Lord. Say that with me. My hope is in you, Lord. Advent has four big themes. Hope, love, joy, peace, and then Christmas Eve, we crown it with the last of five themes, which is light. Jesus Christ has come into the world and has lighted the darkness of the world. And so this first Sunday, we talk about the hope that God has, the hope that is in the hearts of people. The hope, I believe, that people have who don't even know God but recognize some sense of a frustration with the way life is and yet a realization that it should not be this way. That things shouldn't be done in vanity. Things shouldn't be done and always have to be a struggle. What was the set of circumstances that brought about the change that put us into this downward spiral? We have to go back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. And you look back and you, you recall in that cosmic anthem that some theologians believe God actually sang into existence. The book of Job says, the day the morning stars shouted together and the sons of God sang. And so it's a picture of God speaking into being. He did not with natural hands carve the valleys and push the mountains up and then cause water to flow. But the Bible says that it was by the word of his power he spoke it into being. Old and New Testament give witness to that same principle. And it is like a song with multiple verses. You will see that God speaks in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And in the move of God's new creation, it's the same thing. There's chaos in your life and mine before we come to Christ, and and God is brooding, he's dealing with, he's causing his spirit to draw. And, and, and then God speaks into that circumstance and he says, light be into that darkness, into that confusion, into that chaos. And there begins to spring a process of order and the evening and the morning were the first day and God creates. And it's like a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh verse every day. The evening and the morning were the third day. And God said it was good. The evening and the morning were the fourth day, and God said it was good. And you read that, it's just almost like a chorus, a refrain of a song that keeps repeating. And God sang it several times into creation so that we could see that everything that God put on the planet had a purpose. And everything, when operating according to God's purpose, is good. And then when he steps back and finally crowns his creation... With those who had been made in his image and after his likeness, Genesis one twenty six, he, he sets Adam into the midst of the garden, and he makes them male and female, Adam and Eve. And he steps back, and he looks, and he says, Behold, it is very good. Everybody say, Very good. I believe there's nothing on the planet that's been created, even as my daddy used to word. He, he, didn't, he didn't use bad language, but he used one of those old country terms. He would say, Confound it which means confuse it, you know? And so I would just, in remembrance of my dad, right in this moment, it just flew across my mind because I remember him always fussing about mosquitoes, those confound mosquitoes. I believe even God created with a purpose, every living thing, every plant, every animal, every insect, every fish, every bird, every germ, every virus, everything on the planet has a purpose. But into that great thing that God said, Behold, it's very good. We know that Adam and Eve basically committed high treason and stood in the face of God's commandment. And he said, You can have everything all over this garden as far as you can see, all of these multitudes of trees, but there's just one in the middle of the garden that is mine, and I want you to keep your hands off of it. Don't want you to partake of that tree, and you know what happens. Into that scenario, here comes that stinking, talking, confounded snake. And the snake is more subtle than every animal of the field, the scripture says. And he starts talking to Eve. You know the story. Adam is not over there on the back 40 plowing. He's right there with his wife. If you read the Bible, he, and, his, and her husband was with her. Right there in the scenario where it happens. It's not he's over here and doesn't know about it. Comes back and finds her by the tree. Talking to a snake and apple juice all over, running down her chin. Here, honey, taste this. It's pretty good. Think I could make a pie out of it No, that's not how it happened He was right there He was compliant with the whole scenario Instead of standing up and being a man As God had called him to be And saying, don't listen to that stinking, slithering big, long, forked tongue serpent talk anymore because God has given us his word. Our hope is in him and we put our trust in him. He's given us all of this. He said, leave that one alone and you've, got, you've been listening to the serpent. He didn't rise up and say that. He let her listen. He let her take and he followed and partook himself. Nothing magical about the fruit. I don't think it was an apple. I think it was the act I think it was the act of disobeying God when God said, that's mine, let it be, leave it alone. You have all this other. And we're plunged into what we call theologically the fall. Every one of us from that point on are born as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, born with a sin nature. You don't have to teach your children how to sin. They are born with all of the Wiring to be able to accomplish it on their own. Now, if you don't think I'm telling you the truth, you just wait till you catch little Junior for the very first time and he's heard you say no enough and he's been spatted on the hand and he tells this first lie and you go, how did you know how to do that? None of you parents have ever sat down and said, Hey, Junior, let me tell you about this thing called a lie. This is how you do it. No, you don't have to. We are born with that proclivity. It is called a sin nature. It is on the inside of us, and it is there and reigning supremely until we meet Jesus Christ, who is the answer that is given right there in the middle of that circumstance. God comes looking for Adam and Eve. Now, see, I love this, because this is so contrary to the way Many times in the 21st century, we think of the gospel. Somebody says, you know, I got saved, I found Jesus, and I want to go. No, baby, honey, you didn't find him because he wasn't the one that was lost. He found you. He's been seeking you, looking for you. Just the way in the very first incident, God went in the garden hunting for Adam and Eve. Look at your neighbor and say, God's on the hunt, and he's a good hunter. Let me just tell you, he will find those that he's looking for. He went on the hunt for Adam and Eve, and in the middle of that, the very first thing God does after the fall is he pronounces a jurisdictional legal declaration, and he starts declaring a curse, first of all on the snake, and then on Eve, and then on Adam, and then on the ground that Adam was going to work. So there is this progression of serpent, woman, man, ground, the whole planet, it thistles and thorns. You're going you're to labor by the sweat of your brow. So there is this progressive curse. But in the middle of this curse, in the middle of this declaration by the judge of the universe, there is this little three-line promise that is the picture of the very first gospel that's ever been heard or uttered before. Theologically, we refer to it and call it the protovangel. Protoevangel. It literally means... The the first gospel and my point this morning is we see the problem in the fall But God immediately in that circumstance gives the answer that is to come And the answer is not a declaration of law The law is being given right there and it's the curse That comes because of the law of God But in the middle of that law God gives this little bitty seed form packet of the gospel And this is what he says in Genesis chapter three verse 15, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Everybody, look at your neighbor and say, "The seed is coming." Now if you read this in the King James, it will say, "The seed of the woman." It's talking about the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. You you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel. It talks about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So the seed is coming and we're talking about the prophecy or the promise of a Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, that we will see revealed four millennia later. Down through history, we're going to see prophets of old rise up in the spirit and they begin to move into the eternal realm of the anointing and they start to see things. And they're living in one age, but they're declaring what's coming in another. And so this whole thing is throughout all of the old covenant, the seed is coming, the seed is coming. Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, Moses begins to prophesy and he says, I will raise up a prophet that shall be a deliverer among my people. One likened to Moses himself. Moses was the federal head of the old covenant of which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the federal head of the new covenant, the New Testament. A better covenant based on better promises, built on a better resurrection. The seed is coming. So we have a problem and we have an answer right there in the middle of it. God drops a seed pod right down there in that garden where sin has entered in and disobedience has brought a curse and frustration I think of Romans chapter 8, and what is it about verse 21 where it says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. God's put a curse on the whole planet, but with that curse, he also gave the gospel seed of hope. The frustration that you feel in, tr- in going through life, and you wake up in your mid-40s and you have a typical midlife awareness that comes about that I've not met the goals yet that I had hoped to achieve by the time I hit 4-0. I, I, I've not been able to see the world that I wanted to see. I've not been able to do what I wanted to do. But yet I know that I know that I know down in my heart that there's something of the purpose of God, the destiny of God that's being lived out of my life. Now, God, I want you to help me. I want to make sure that every day of my life counts. And David is crying that prayer out in Psalm 39. He's saying, God, make me to know the the shortness of the days of my life, how fleeting it is and the handbreadth that it is. How the multitudes of people go around doing everything they can to, 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 to heap up all this wealth, not having any idea whose hands it's going to end up in, whether they're going to be frugal or they're just going to blow it. But Lord what do I look for in the midst of all of this pursuit of carnality all this pursuit of material things the silver and the gold and the power and the pleasure and all of these things that this world pull at me David says but God what do I look for and he says my hope is in you O Lord Say that with me my hope is in you O Lord So God shows us the problem of disobedience. He pronounces the curse, but in the middle of it, he gives us the answer, the very first uttering of the gospel. proto Number two, the prophecy and its satisfaction. The prophecy... And the fact that it actually does come to pass. Remember, we've got a God who said it this way. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, the King James says. ESV says it shall not come back to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I please. ESV says it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. And it will prosper in the thing whereunto I've sent it. ESV says it will succeed in the thing that I've sent it to do. God does not speak one word that it does not have the power in it to bring to pass the thought that he projected when he spoke it. God is speaking promises over your life right now. Some of you sitting under the power, the sound of my voice in this room, feel like you're looking up through the bottom of the barrel and wonder if there is any hope. And I want to tell you, if you don't have any hope left and all you have is your hope in Jesus, that's all the hope in the world that you need in the first place. But what do I look for, Lord? My hope is in you. The prophecy and its satisfaction. We're going to ask about six or seven journalistic newspaper-type questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how, all of these things. The very first one is the question, why? It's already been answered in Genesis 3.15. This seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. This one that God gave us, that little bitty seed pot of a gospel, the fact that in the, right there in the middle of the curse, God was going to send one that was going to straighten out this mess. But listen to this. The next question is what? The first one was why. The second question is what? Genesis chapter 49, listen to verses 8 through 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Everybody say Judah. Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Now, get this. Get this. God has sent Adam and Eve from the garden and he's given a word that literally this one who was responsible for plunging it every bit into sin she is going to bear the seed that's going to change this thing I wrote a poem almost 20 years ago called The Promise that I'm going to share in its complete form all the verses uh, Monday night, December 24th at our Christmas Eve service it's called The Promise and the first verse goes this way it says Neither poet nor saint nor sage can say how sad the heart of God that day when Satan's evil scheming alibi, first Adam chose to embrace the lie. Disobedience came in. And the story continues to go through the verse and it comes down to a line because I don't have time to go through it all. But it says, "While, while on that spot and in that place, God made a promise to Adam's race. This one that you blame and are in strife, Adam, she shall bear the seed of eternal life. And it goes on to talk about how God will give a sign and a virgin shall conceive and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Now, we leave the garden and the family of man begins to progress and we go through Noah and his three sons and the dispersion, repopulating the planet. We head over to Genesis chapter 11. At the very close of Genesis chapter 11, we hear about a guy by the name of Abram. And God taps Abram on the shoulder, changes his name to Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him, which is basically the guts of the whole new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, the promises that God makes to him, he basically says, I will bless you. I will make you be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and I will make your name great, he says, and you will be the father out of you. You'll be the father among many nations, of many nations, he says, and because of you, every family on the earth is going to be blessed. Now, Galatians gives us the interpretation of that in chapter 4, and he says that's one seed, which is Christ. It was through the seed of Abraham, which Jesus has a direct connection in his lineage, that the promise was fulfilled. We've got all these folks who've come along. Abraham, 25 years, waiting on a promise from God, and he finally gives him his son, Isaac, who comes along the way. His name means laughter, and Isaac marries Rebecca, and Isaac and Rebecca have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob wrestles with God. He marries a couple of ladies and has... 12 children who become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And so, basically, Jacob now, who is the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, say it with me, here we go, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they become for the next several thousand years what every Jew prays in the name of, in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oral history was the means by which Origins were identified and passed on. Moses prepared a whole group of people who'd been born in the wilderness, giving the law of God in the second time in the book of Deuteronomy, so that they could go in and possess the promised land. Everybody say the promised land. So we're talking about the promise this morning. Promises of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs. They're the They're the ancestors to which we look back and how God made promises to them and how God kept his word because God is a God of integrity. He he keeps what he promises. He's not going to let something slide or something go slack. The, the The New Testament book of 2 Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are given the promises of God to the patriarchs and Now we finally have Jacob in Genesis 49. He's got all of his sons that are passing before him and he's leaning on his staff. He's an old man up in years and he's leaning on his staff that literally has the history of his life and every time where God met him and gave him a promise and fulfilled it it is carved down the whole up and down every side of that old staff that Jacob is leaning on the Bible says in in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith he prophesied and gave the blessing of of the Lord over his sons while leaning on that staff come on somebody's hearing me this morning so come on, even when you get old, you 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 have a, a an ability to look back and go, look what the Lord did for me right here at this part of my life. Look look at the story of how God met me. Come on, don't 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 tell me you little young whippersnapper that that God won't answer prayer because look at this little time in my life right here. I I I I thought I was going to die and I thought an older brother was going to kill me and, and and guess what? I, I sent some blessing ahead of time and God brought peace. He's leaning on his staff and he's prophesying over all those sons of Reuben and. Simeon and Levi, Ephraim and Manasseh and Dan and Asher and Gad and Naphtali, all the sons of Jacob, which are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. That's fine. We love the sound of a little baby crying. That's the sound of life. These are not little babies, though, that Jacob is prophesying over, and they're being passed in front of him, and Jacob is leaning on his staff, and when the son Judah comes forward, whose name means praise, he leans into him, and he says, he says, let me just tell you this. He said, I see the Lord saying that the scepter, that's a ruling instrument, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Can you believe that God is so big and that he is so sovereign that he literally causes some practicing Jew in the lineage of Judah literally to sit on the throne of David up until the exact year that Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem in 4 BC and it is Herod the Great who is sitting on the throne. He is the last practicing Jew that ever rules over the Jewish people and the prophecy is fulfilled The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And Jesus is born, and Herod the Great dies. Now don't get confused. There are about eight Herods in the Bible, four of which are actually called Herod. Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, Philip. All of these have the name Herod because it's Herod the family name. But the great one who rebuilt the temple, who maniacally killed his family... Who, was, who built Masada, if you ever studied any history, in the great fortress in Israel, uh, was a prefect of the Roman Empire. The Romans had taken over the whole known world, all, all over, if you look at the Mediterranean basin and you see Portugal and Spain and Italy, the boot of Italy and France over here on this side and then Germany and you start moving around the Eastern European countries and over here is Turkey and then you get over here, uh, over North Africa, you've got Egypt North Africa, that whole basin of the Mediterranean on a map is when the Bible says the whole world heard. That's what they're talking about, the known world to them at the time. So the gospel was pervasive once Jesus came, but Herod was ruling as a prefect under the Roman Empire. Now hear this, Julius Caesar had been assassinated in the Roman Senate in 27 B.C. And he had left in his will that his great nephew Octavius would take the leadership would become the new Caesar. And so Octavius inherits it. The Roman Senate agrees to it. And Octavius is pretty smart. He's very politically savvy. And he, he does not allow himself to be called a dictator the way his uncle, great uncle Julius did. And so the Roman Senate really basically sort of reveres him in a great way. And they change his name, give him the title Augustus. Everybody say Augustus. Some of you are going, okay, why is he shifting into his history teacher mode here? That's the dude that was in the Bible when Jesus was born, who all of a sudden just decided out of the blue, we need to to get a census. We need to figure out how many people we've got in this Roman Empire because we need to expand this thing. We need to have some more military conquests. We need to see the the green color on the map that represents the Roman Empire start to spread out even more. Well, I can't do that, Augustus says, if I don't have a census. Well, guess what he said? You're going to have to go back to your hometown where your Progenitors, where your forebears, your forefathers came from And that's where everybody's supposed to register That's the reason that in that last moment A little virgin who had conceived and had never known a man And a a man who had had a dream and an angel had appeared to him and said This thing is from God, Joseph I want you to go ahead and take her and cover her And you're going to call his name Jesus Because he's going to save his people from their sins And the word goes out and it's a Roman decree They're living in Nazareth But guess what happens? They have to obey the word of Caesar. And this is such an amazing thing. I'm going to fast forward ahead a little bit to Micah to answer the question where. Because the prophet Micah gets in the flow of the spirit. And he starts to touch that eternal realm. And he sees into time in the future that has not yet been lived out in the human economy yet, in time and space, and he starts to prophesy, and he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me. One, his two, is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So a family that's living in Nazareth, God taps, who controls the hearts of kings in the first place, Come on, Proverbs chapter 21 says, The hand of the Lord, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord who turns it even as the water courses in the river. That's the reason I, I, I didn't flinch uh, when, when so many people thought one thing or another about the last election. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office because we know who's on the throne this morning. Come on, somebody. And his name is Jesus. And if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, I'm going to tell you whether you voted for him or not, you still have to obey the commandment of God in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that is to pray for kings and all of those that are in authority so that we may live godly and peaceable lives. Come on, say amen. Amen. So God tapped a Roman Caesar on the shoulder and gave him the idea to take a census at the exact time when it would cause a family to leave Nazareth and head down to Bethlehem because God knew it would be about the time that the birthing of that seed was going to come forth. So we ask the questions, why and what and who? Listen to who, the who. This is the answer to the who question. Isaiah, 700 years before it happens, gets in the flow of the Spirit and he sees into the future. And he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Same breath that he was in in chapter 7 and verse 14 when he answered how. And this is the one they laughed him to scorn. Isaiah has royal blood. He's a cousin to Uzziah who's the king at the time. And so he's influencing the the royalty and the nobility of the land. And he's prophesying, thus says the Lord. And he stands up one day and he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And they start laughing him. You're crazy, dude. You know what? Your words have been pretty good. We've seen them come to pass, but we've never yet seen a virgin have a baby. A virgin shall conceive and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And they laughed at him for 700 years until about 4 B.C. when Isaiah leaned over the balcony of heaven and he looked down into a little bitty manger stall in the city of Bethlehem and he saw a light that pierced the darkness through the whole universe. The light of the world had been birthed into the cosmos. Come on, somebody say amen. So we've heard about why and what and how and where. Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 through 27 is the grandest Old Testament prophecy that actually specifically gives us the time when Jesus is going to be born. It says, from the going forth of the commandment, from the prophecy to rebuild the temple, which it's in the annals of history. It says, from that time, you're to count 70 weeks of sevens, 490 years. And there's a, a division of that that I don't have time to break open this morning because it's, it's pretty intense. But literally, it says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be Seven weeks. That Literally, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And when you read all of this and you get this whole thing together and you count a year for every one of those, seven weeks of years, 490 years, it brings you right down to the exact time when Jesus not only is born in 4 B.C., but the next one is when he is crucified in 30 A.D. And when the sacrifice in that generation ends in the temple... Jesus became the last Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. And it just took a generation for it to actually end in 70 AD when they sacked the temple. And the prophecy came to pass when Jesus said, this generation standing here will not pass until they see this happen. That's when the temple was taken down, one block after another. Now, why am I taking the time to be this specific about history and prophecy? Because I want you to see that the same God who has prophesied how and when and why and where and what, from what tribe, all of these intricate things that could only be answered by one person on the planet, and that is Yeshua Hamashiach, that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior and the Lord of the earth, Why I want you to see that is because it has direct bearing on where you are this morning. And I'm bringing this message down to my last point. The last point is the promise and its fulfillment. Say that with me, please. The promise and its fulfillment. We move to the New Testament and no longer are we saying the seed is coming, the seed is coming, the seed is coming. But from Bethlehem on, we say the seed is here. The seed has come. In the Gospels, the seed speaks. The seed lives and the seed dies. In Acts, the seed is raised from the dead. In the Epistles, the seed speaks. In the book of Revelation, the seed reigns. We're talking about Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Listen. But when the fullness of time had come. Everybody say fullness of time. Daniel 9 gives us right down to the year when this Messiah was going to come, when he was going to be born, gives us right down to the year when he'll be crucified. He'll put an end to sin. He would become the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, answering again the old Genesis protovangel, the seed of the woman. Born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What am I saying to you this morning? If Jesus Christ is alive in your heart, you are a slave to nothing except him. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. You're a son. You're an heir through God. That has already happened. The fullness of time has already come. He who with the seed who was coming now has come because he was born of a woman born under the law. couple things. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. Romans 15, 8, listen to this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs. patri father, arche, chief. The word patriarch means the chief fathers. For 4,000 years, every time a Jew prayed, it was in the name of the God of the, the chief fathers, the patriarchs, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Jesus comes on the scene, he looks at them and he totally changes everything. He says, from now on, I don't want you to pray in the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of, the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to pray. When you do, you say, our, what? Father. father, who art in heaven. Because guess what? Now you're not a slave anymore, but you're a son and an heir through God. He is. Now notice he didn't say, say my father. He said, say our father. Because it's not just me and Jesus. With Jesus comes his family. That's the real kicker. It's everybody else included. Some that you might not have picked to be included. Don't look at me at that tone of voice. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You just experienced some of that at your last Thanksgiving meal when the in laws and the outlaws all showed up. Come on, come on, come on. Can, can we be a little bit real in the room this morning? You know, there, there, there's a little bit in every one of us that still needs some adjustment. That means you may rub me a little bit the wrong way and I may rub you a little bit the wrong way. And in the middle of all of this, there, there may be even, even be something. Let me just say this to you. I might even give my word and not be able to follow through with it. But let me tell you, we serve a God who will never, ever, ever let any promise he's made fall to the ground. <clears throat> it, it broke my heart when my five-year-old son looked at me Because I'd promised him that we were gonna go do a movie together. Now, Drew will be 25 in January, so I'm going back 20 years. We're gonna have some Daddy Drew time. He called me Papa in those days. We're going to have some Papa Drew time, okay? We're going to gonna go do the movie together. We're going to go see blah, 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 and you know, whatever. And we, we're always doing stuff. I took time out to make sure that early on with both of the children, I would check them out of preschool and out of school sometimes and go take them to lunch and just do stuff with them or go show up at lunch and have lunch with them in the cafeteria with their friends. And I'd promised Drew that we were going to do this. And something happened here at Victory. We had a, a death in the church and I, had in, I was involved with the family in preparation for the funeral and... I got home and, and Drew had tears in his eyes and he said, Papa, you gave away your promise. And I was fighting. I mean, right now I just I remember that moment when that little big blue eyed little boy looked at me in that just face of innocence. And to some degree I was like God in his life. I was the picture of which I think is there is supposed to be some connection between our natural father and our heavenly father. And that's the reason as fathers we need to bear up underneath this challenge of being men of our word and being men of integrity. Come on somebody. So that, so that when we make a promise that they can go, you know what, I believe my heavenly father, even as much as my father was, I believe my heavenly father is that much more. And all that my natural dad wasn't. And my son looked at me and he said, dad, you gave away your promise. And I said, oh, Drew, I'm so sorry, son. And right now you can understand it. But as you grow, you'll understand that sometimes life happens. And you've, you've said you would do something. And circumstance prevents you from being able to follow through. And I would never hurt you for anything. But I just I had to do this. This is part of who I am and what I do. And, and I'll give you special time. And I learned from that not to be so quick to say I promise. But let me tell you something. When God says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper. It shall succeed in the thing whereunto I have sent it. When God speaks a creative word and that idea, that thought that has come out of his mouth into an expression, into a cosmic language, into the language that you understand, into the language that a child can understand that doesn't even speak yet. It can be in the language of a hug. It can be in the language of somebody in the room this morning that needs to hear the language of, I forgive you, says the Lord. Somebody in the room needs to know that not only has God forgiven you, but you need to let it go and forgive yourself because it's under the blood of Jesus. Jesus. And if it's, a, if it's a word or a language you can't understand, then just feel the embrace and the arms, the everlasting arms of the Holy Spirit wrapped around you today because our God is a God of his word. He's a God of integrity. He will never give his promise away. All of the promises have been confirmed in Jesus Christ that were given to the patriarchs. This is the last thing and I'm finished. I hope you've gotten something out of this, but this is the punchline. Don't go to sleep on me yet. All the promises in him are yes and amen. Listen, I think we have this one on the screen. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Read it out loud with me. Come on, let's go. For all the promises, a few of them. Once in a while, every now and then. All, say to come let's go again, let's get it. All the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, who is him? Jesus. Let's read, here we go. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Oh, my goodness. Come on, give him some praise this morning. Now, what am I saying? The promise that you need right now to speak to your circumstances, some of you are in a storm, and you so desperately need to lean over and go, oh, wait, it's okay, Jesus is up in the boat with me. Because if you can get Jesus in the boat with you, you don't have to worry about the storm. Your ship is not going to sink. All he has to do is just look. I don't believe he even has to say a word. I believe he just has to just look. The disciples saw it happen. They were eyewitnesses of the power of God revealed through Emmanuel. Peace be still. And immediately the storm ceased. And the. The Sea of Galilee was like a piece of glass. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Some of you sitting in this room this morning are, are struggling in a financial circumstance that you just don't know how in the world God's going to fix it, and yet you, you're standing on promises that, that you were his and you've been faithful to tithe, and you're, you're confessing, my God shall supply all of my need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Some of you are struggling in marriages that are not on the rocks. They ain't much left but the rock. problems we are like david right in psalm 39 that we opened this whole thing up with this morning god is just a hand breath and we're fleeting lord it's just a whisper and we're putting all this mounting all this wealth up and we're going to get up here in this christmas season and we're going to go out here and struggle to buy stuff we can't afford with credit and money we don't have so we can impress some people that we don't even know and we're piling up wealth and stuff and we have no idea who's going to end up with it in their hands or maybe you're not buying stuff maybe it's just it's all about making the 401k look as good as it possibly can which can't be too good for most anybody these days and our focus is on all that stuff whatever your struggle is it may be a habit that you can't break it may be a pattern of behavior that you've just been stuck in a downward cycle you feel like you're literally being sucked down the swirling toilet of life. And I'm going to tell you, whatever the promise of God is that you're standing on, God has already said yes to it. He's given you a yes in Jesus Christ. But that passage right there is the key. It says, it is through him that we utter the amen to the glory of God. So Jesus Christ is the heavenly conductor. Of, a, of an orchestra in heaven And the whole point is that he's looking to get The sound that is going forth out of heaven To have a corresponding sound in earth And, and, and we, we hear the Holy Spirit Who is trying to get us tuned up and, and maybe we're a little bit flat in our faith And we're supposed to have this kind of sound And we're over here We're, we're, we're making some dissonance Or maybe we're a little bit presumptuous and we're a little bit sharp in our faith. And he's looking for a sound to come back together so that heaven and earth can be in harmony. What he said in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. When we can get ourselves in agreement with what Jesus has already said yes to. And we arise in faith and we say the amen. We're no longer dissonant. We're not making a bad chord. We're not disagreeing with what the word of the Father is, but we're saying amen to his sound. Are you following me this morning? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, if two of you agree, they say agree. It's the Greek word symphoneia. We get our English word symphony from it. If two of you will get in symphony together. This is a principle of he who says yes and now the church and the earth is supposed to rise up and say amen. Amen is not just a nice little sweet religious word that we use on Sunday morning to end our prayers with. Amen has a meaning. It has a three word definition to it. Somebody tell me what amen means. So be it. I love Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments. He's Pharaoh. He says, so let it be written, so let it be done. So Jesus gives the promise and he says in him it's yes. It's always yes. And all you have to do is rise up and agree with him. Get in agreement. Start to make a symphony. Be in harmony with. Don't get in disagreement or discord or strife with what the word says. What does the word say? Let what the word says come out of your mouth. Because God has said the word that's coming out of his mouth won't come back empty. Are you hearing me this morning? So he says, yes, you rise up and say, amen, so be it. And that's what happens. Let me tell you. That's what happens in somebody's heart this morning. The Spirit of God, in the same way that it was in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let us there be light and an explosion. Scientists these days are calling it the Big Bang. An explosion of cataclysmic proportions took place because into chaos, light dawned. As every person in this room bows your head together with me right now, every heart humble before the presence of God, Spirit of God is brooding over some dark old creations, people struggling in sin, dead in sin, no hope without God in the world, and this morning the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of your life, and I believe during this service, as only the Holy Spirit can, not ever do to the skill of anybody who can preach good or any, it has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Some of you sense the Spirit of the Lord drawing you. That's happening right now in this room, in this place. Darkness pervades your life, but you've just seen something. The the, the light has dawned. Spiritual blindness has left you. Spiritual deafness has been opened up and you've heard the the seed of the gospel this morning. And God is speaking over your life and he's looking down into your heart and he says, yes. He gives you the ability now because he's made you spiritually alive. He's activated you, raised you from spiritual death. And now for the very first time in your life, you can choose something else except sin. You can choose Jesus. You know how you do that? You say the amen to what he's already said yes to. He's reaching into your heart and he said, Yes, the promise of God is over you, sir, over you, ma'am, over you, young person. Yes, yes, yes. And you simply respond and say, Amen. You do that by just saying, Jesus, save me. It's all you need to know. Don't have to understand a bunch of theology. It starts right there. God's perfect law demands justice and holiness, and every one of us are dreadful lawbreakers, covenant breakers if we got justice what we deserve this morning I would be in hell but in the middle of the curse God has given a seed pod of the gospel the protovangel he's planted a seed of hope in your heart in your life that seed already came to fruition 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ Emmanuel God the word became flesh and he lived a perfect sinless spotless life died on a cross and he said I love you this much and he stretched his arms out and he died didn't just stop at his death God received that sacrifice for the sin of the world and he raised him from the dead and this morning God has already plugged a free gift of faith into your heart and he's reaching out to give you by grace right now and that's how you take a hold of it you do what David did he says my hope is in the Lord not in your ability to figure this thing out, not in your ability to turn over a new leaf, not in your ability to... Whatever, whatever you think you thought you could have done, it's not going to get it. It's only in Jesus. He's the only way. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Every head bowed, every eye closed, and I'm finishing this morning. Anybody under the sound of my voice, you've sensed the Spirit of God drawing you today in this place, and you want to cross that line of faith. You know Jesus has dropped a yes down into your heart. And now you want to respond and say amen to it. That's where you begin a whole new life in Jesus Christ. No longer the old creation, but now a new creation. Let there be light. Just want to ask you right now: if you want to be included in this prayer, would you slip your hand up? Anybody in the room? Yes. Yes, I see. You. Thank you. There's at least three hands that have gone up. Yes, thank you. Now I'm talking. To-